And really this is about bringing AI scientists, people who are doing, innovating on machine learning methods together with domain scientists and figuring out where's that point where we can plug AI into the climate model and really enhance its predictive capabilities. You're listening to Numerically Speaking, the Anaconda podcast. On this podcast, we'll dive into a variety of topics around data, quantitative computing, and business and entrepreneurship. We'll speak to creators of cutting-edge open-source tools and look at their impact on research in every domain. We're excited to bring you insights about data, science, and the people that make it all happen. Whether you want to learn about AI or grow your data science career, or just better understand the numbers and the computers that shape our world, Numerically Speaking is the podcast for you. Make sure to subscribe. For more resources, please visit anaconda.com. I'm your host, Peter Wayne. This episode is brought to you by Anaconda Notebooks. With nothing to install and nothing to configure, Anaconda Notebooks is a lightweight, ready-to-code, and fully loaded data science environment entirely in your browser. Spin up new projects with the click of a button with all the packages and files you need in one place. With fast and persistent cloud storage, no matter what, wherever you go, your code goes. And students, listen up. You also get on-demand access to Anaconda's data science experts. No matter your experience level, learn through hands-on experimentation, and you'll be predicting the future with machine learning models in no time. So what are you waiting for? Start coding with Anaconda entirely in the cloud on anaconda.cloud. All right, welcome, welcome. And I'm really, really excited to invite Ryan here on Numerically Speaking. Really excited to have this conversation. I think we have a lot of really fun things to talk about. Ryan, you've done some really, really exciting work. We talked about so many different things, but before we do that, would you like to go ahead and give a bit of an introduction about kind of you know, your background and what you work on, what brought you into this whole PyData and cloud and all these different kinds of things? Really happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Peter. In terms of my background, I realize I'm kind of a lifelong hacker and computer nerd. I've kind of embraced this identity. So my father worked for IBM. We had like PCs since as long as I can remember, you know, back in the 80s, you know, when I was a little kid, started coding basic and got a little bit away from that as I got older, but then rediscovered my sort of passion for computing and technology in college. I got really into the whole sort of streaming media and video and audio thing. This was back in like 2002, 2003. So I was like really into like college radio I set up like the streaming system for my college radio station. After that, I worked for a while, like at this radio and TV program called Democracy Now, doing sort of video audio production stuff in this like sort of indie media like world. It feels like a long time ago now. And then I took a big pivot and I decided to go back to to school uh, to do a PhD in climate science at MIT. And then I just became, you know, like a scientist and did research, studying the oceans, their role in climate. I've been working as a professor at Columbia since 2013 and continuing that research trajectory and working with some great students and postdocs. But during the, this past you know, nine years, I've slowly, the, the sort of hacker side of me has slowly been re-emerging and in fact sort of taking back over my life and career. And now I'm at the point where I'm thinking about data and coding and cloud and all of this stuff, you know, almost all day. So it's been a fun journey and I feel like it's actually just getting started. You know, I actually, I didn't know that part of the streaming media thing. Did you pay your annual, like whatever, 600 bucks to ASCAP or something 
to be able to stream radio back then. Wasn't there something like that? Because a buddy of mine ran an internet streaming station back then as well. And I just remember this like outrageous, well, not outrageous, but like there was all the stuff he had to go through. Like he was a real radio station. It was kind of the wild west for college radio. You know, like we were paying already licensing fees. That's how all radio stations were, were doing it. But right. then we just started doing the streaming without, we didn't ask permission really. Probably after I left, they had to sort that out and actually do it right. We were mostly like, you know, what is all this tech? We were setting up servers under the studio console and learning all about compression and, and mm -hmm. protocols. And it's really interesting how that's actually helped my science a lot because I felt like I had this really solid foundation in like, what is digital data? Like, how do we move it around? Ah, like, right. what is throughput? Like, what is bandwidth? Concepts I kind of took for granted that have been really helpful in computational science. I got my start thinking about audio and video, actually. That's interesting that you started there and you did the computer stuff because you had to. It was a means to an end. Then you went to go and study climate science and then you found yourself doing more computer stuff as a means to an end and then getting sucked in more and more into that. So we, you know, Anaconda and some of the open source folks here at Anaconda have been working with you and with the Pangeo Project for a number of years now. And there are a lot of really, really fun things that, that we've built that we've worked on. A lot of the open source tools that we've built were, many of them had features and things that came out of needs that you all had in the climate science arena. It's just been really, really, I think, productive collaboration between the scientific needs that you all have. And then, of course, also, to be clear, you were trying to do a research collaboration in the cloud. It's like cloud native science almost, right? How do we do that? And of course, there's all sorts of sharp rocks to trip on and, and fall over and, and doing all that stuff. Not all of which are technical. Some are organizational. And we'll talk about that later, right? But then definitely helped drive and inspire some of the work that we've done on like FS spec and intake and DASC and all these kinds of things. So I really appreciate you're leaning into that collaboration and people who are using those tools should know they're benefiting from input of your group and, and from you personally, of course. But as you look out right now at the state of science, like just climate science, tell me about what's, what's top of mind for you in that area as you're, as you're thinking about that. Absolutely. Well, let me start with something that's really, I think, exciting and inspirational that's happening right now in climate science. And I'm mm -hmm. involved in some of this at the periphery, but you know, the only way we have really solid information about what's going to happen to our future climate is through something we call climate models. And these are some of the sort of main workhorse applications of traditional high-performance computing, you know, supercomputers. Like, right. that's one of, like, going back to von Neumann, like, this is, like, why they built why we build supercomputers. Computers to, pre <laughs> right. to predict the weather and really to project forward the climate. And these are, like, for the most part, really heavy-duty scientific computing applications, mostly written in Fortran, maintained mm -hmm. by these teams at national labs, places like, you know, DOE labs and, you know, GFDL at Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab and National Center for Atmospheric Research, you know, beasts of code with a long legacy, very sophisticated at what they do, very, in a way, isolated from the rest of computational science, particularly like modern data science. And what we're trying to do now is we're trying to fuse those models and, and enhance them using stuff from AI. We're trying to, basically, these are big PDE solvers, and they don't really incorporate data directly. Yet there is all this data out there about the Earth that we can potentially leverage to make the models better. And so the scientific challenge is how do we 
actually plug those things together. How do we actually make a 40-year-old legacy Fortran code have a neural network from PyTorch running inside it? And how do we scientifically, what is the right framework to integrate data into that type of application? And this is ultimately a not just a technical problem, but really a interdisciplinary science problem. So we have this great new collaboration, couple projects I'm involved in, one called multi-scale machine learning for earth system modeling, and another called learning the earth with artificial intelligence and physics. That's a new center mm -hmm. here at Columbia. And really this is about bringing AI scientists, people who are doing, innovating on the machine learning methods together with domain scientists, and figuring out where's that point where we can plug AI into the climate model and really enhance its predictive capabilities. So I don't want to rattle on this part too much right now, but it does seem to me like, yes, absolutely. And using AI, you know, we talk about AI as if it's this new thing, but when you zoom out and you look at the cybernetics and, the, you know, I sort of talked about this with Paco Nathan in a previous episode, right? That the origin of computing was in prediction. The origin of computing was in simulation. We didn't do it to go and do mass telephony. We didn't do it to go and do banking system reconciliation. We didn't do it to make computer games and, you know, World of Warcraft. We did it to predict. We started, the whole field started in prediction and trying to make guns hit airplanes or make guns, you know, lob shells onto target, you know, from, a, from the rolling sea. And then that became more and more about simulating things, simulating things. And then we got these big computers. And there's this whole, like, very big iron serious let's say a branch of the family tree of computing that actually stayed in that world a bit. And then it ended up with things like APL and Fortran. And then from Fortran, we get the influences on things like MATLAB and NumPy, of course. But the rest of the, the personal computing world went down a whole different path. And now we're faced with at a civilizational level needing to really, really, really do like no kidding simulation. And we want to understand what's going to happen to like billions of people, right? And in doing all of that, we sort of rediscover AI, right? The, the AI winter's over, it's back again. But now what we found is not only have people lost, well, there's a lack of faith in institutions, there's a lack of trust in science. Now we're going to put AI into it to then make even more policy, you know, facing kinds of predictions. And this is going to sound like, well, you're just bringing Skynet in to tell me what to do versus no, this is what we built. Like it was all about prediction from in the first place. But anyway, not that you're ever going to make that point to, I think, the layperson, but I do think it's very interesting in this area in particular, we have to get quite serious. This is not some Dolly art thing. This is like something very serious about understanding what is the AI or what are the machine learning models training on? What is in the models? What is not in the models? How much are they, you know, are they doing like a, a cubic fit? Or are they doing something better to project what goes forward? I'd love to talk about that in a little later bit, but before we even get to the AI part, let's talk about what is your view right now on how data intensive science is being done. What is the state of that really in academia? And if you can talk about other disciplines, that's great. Yeah. If you want to keep it scoped to climate science, that's great too. I think this is something that transcends disciplines. And so data intensive science is the term that I try to use to describe the problems that we are kind of obsessed with trying to solve in our research group and in our open source work. So in a way, we have this ability to generate data right now in science, much faster than we can understand it. So whether that's simulated data, like those supercomputers are great at generating data. Like you can run simulations, you know, all day long, dump petabytes of data onto a disk. And like, there's interesting science in that data, whether it's turbulence or, you know, molecular dynamics, 
or drug discovery or whatever. And likewise with sensors, with satellites, drones, new observing platforms. In the ocean, we use autonomous robots that have sensors. They're just floating around, diving up and down and sending data back to satellites. So we have this deluge of data. And so much of the challenge I see is around how do we interpret and make sense of that data? In many cases, it involves data fusion, combining data from the robots with satellites or combining data from the models with in situ observations. And particularly, there's huge challenges around the volume of data that we have to confront now. And this has just changed in my relatively short scientific career. It's, it's really just exploded and ballooned. And mm -hmm. it is very hard to share and collaborate around large scientific data sets. Once you're measuring that in the petabytes, we have our HPC centers that have a mandate to provide access to scientists, but they're really fortresses. I mean, they're designed to keep outsiders away from the data, heavy security, strong restrictions on what you can run there. And what we are really trying to do in science is bring more people into the conversation, not just more collaborators from other you know, Ivy League institutions, but we really wanna be in climate science. We wanna be involving people from the developing world in that science, because they're the yeah. ones who are at the most risk from climate change. Like we need to be right. more inclusive and the way we're doing infrastructure is not serving that goal. That's why I and many others are excited about the cloud. Despite all of the caveats that come with cloud computing, it is a really very much a democratic space where we can all collaborate together and it has the right infrastructure to truly scale to the size and complexity of the data that we're working on. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I, many many of our podcast listeners are, you know, coming from the private sector, from industry, and the general public is probably used to this idea of scientific data being relatively open and public. And I mean, obviously, you know, pictures come off a space telescope, it's published, uh, you know, on all the news sites the next day. So what is the, so this idea, like if you, and if you go to, of course, like, you know, an insurance company, if you work in IT in an insurance company or a bank or something like that, or if you work for the military in some military data analysis kind of thing, it makes sense to you that the data infrastructure and the computer infrastructure is a fortress there. There's personal data, there's like national security data, but for science, for supercomputers that the public, the public tax dollars go to pay for to facilitate science, the idea that those are really locked down environments is somewhat, that's, that's somewhat surprising, isn't it? Or... I mean, should we be surprised or is like, what well, you know, talk to me about that. So I think those are expensive resources, but, you know, part of the thing that cloud allows you to do is sort of separate the compute part from the data. Traditionally, the way we share data in science is through like the download model. The data provider will make like an FTP server and you can like download the data, right? And that works fine in the small data regime. What those HPC centers offer to scientists is a place where their data and their compute are already together next to each other. And that's what we want. But it's a sort of a monolithic service in the sense that like, it's all bundled together, all paid for and by the same organization. And it's really, it's really oriented around the compute. Like this, those computing centers, they exist to like maximize their CPU utilization. Like that's the right. metric for any... HPC Center, like we were at 99% utilization, like we spun the CPUs day and night, like mission accomplished. So it's a compute centric vision, right? Uh -huh. But for data intensive science, it's really the data that's at the center of the workflow. And that's what cloud is more like, you know, in cloud, really the compute exists to serve the data. And cloud has this key differentiation, which is that 
you have this sort of multi-tenant architecture, right? Like we can have one right. copy of the data and like many people can come and compute on it under their own, you know, account, under their own bill. And it doesn't have to be downloaded. You take it for granted if you're used to cloud computing, but so much of science, you know, in so many fields is still about, okay, like go download like 20 terabytes of this data. Like that's step right. one for the project, like put it on hard drives and then we can like start the project, you know? And well, I just think that's incredibly inefficient. You know, the irony is, so let's see if I figure out how to say this concisely. When Travis and I were really trying to think about the next step, so 10 years ago, when we were thinking about what is the next step, what's different about the Pythonic model of computation as we came from the SciPy ecosystem? And how is that different than all the stuff that we're seeing in business computing when we'd go into your consulting like a Wall Street or in some, you know, whatever big Fortune 100 company and they've got some back-end compute job or some scientific modeling they need to do. And what we found was that when we thought about the problem, him and I are both, you know, I'm, I have a physics background. Travis has an electrical engineering background. We both came from the SciPy world and thinking about how can I efficiently take this code and apply it to as much data as possible. There's very much a SIMD approach, single instruction, multiple dispatch. And what we found when we started, you know, and, and I played more, I was more in kind of the, the technical lead architect role in a lot of these conversations. Go to Wall Street as you do kind of traditional backend computing, let's say for business applications, there was not an appreciation for this kind of architecture. There's much more, people would marshal data items, do row at a time stuff, just, it was completely not a vectorized mindset at all, right? So we were thinking, you know what, really to do the next generation of problems that are coming, and this is 2009 and 10 that we're having these conversations. We're talking about, you know, for the next generation of compute problems coming, for the next scale of data problems that people have, we cannot do this row at a time stuff. You, you know, like the time you don't do row at a time stuff is when you ship a query off to the database and you let that be like, you know, some database vendor's problem. But the average Java dev that we dealt with was like shamelessly going and marshalling floats and ints and moving them around everywhere. And it's like, you're spending a million cycles to move one int from A to B. And so we found this like, oh, the best way to talk about this is to use the terms from supercomputing and scientific computing, HPC, move code to data. And so you'll find, if you go back and look at some of our presentations, our initial Blaze vision and what the, some of the thinking that led to things like Dask and Intake and Numba, it was all about how do you move high-level code, the right code, to massive amounts of data. Because that's a lot easier than shipping data around and shuffling around and marshalling ints everywhere. So then we come around and it, you know, like the whole thing turns around in inverse, right? Now it turns out that these supercomputing facilities, which is where we would have drawn these lessons from, the architecture of the facility, right? And the economics of that facility, their particular metrics and KPIs. If you're a supercomputer you know, manager or owner, it's utilization, you're absolutely right, it's utilization. You cannot say, I, I have my computers, you know, here's a whatever, $100 million supercomputer and it was 90% idle last year. That does not fly, right? So they're solid for this utilization thing and the way they architected for multi-tenancy was not really around data centrality, data gravity across multiple different tenants and stakeholders. Whereas cloud kind of, kind of is, you know, like it's, cl it's closer to it than not. And so this really, I just, I think this is really interesting, the tension between these things. But ultimately what you're talking about is that the dynamic in the problem space is there's data gravity. Absolutely there's data gravity. These data sets are so Definitely. large, we cannot be moving them around between different research groups, right? And that gravity exactly. pulls into the cloud now. You know, it just pulls up into the cloud. And this is really strong in climate science, exactly as you say, because like on one hand, like we're really blessed in 
the environmental sciences in general, we have great open data values. Like you mentioned this earlier, like people do not generally hoard data or like just sit on data. Like it's all about sharing data. We have very strong policies from the, the top down of, from our scientific agencies. Our, our data must be made open. And we have this really strong culture around fair data, findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. And this has pervaded the field. And yet, on the other hand, like we, we don't have an actual platform to enact that. And so mm -hmm. there's this big sort of debate going on in science right now. What is our architecture? Like, what is our field-wide architecture we will use to empower people? And like, there's a bunch of experimentation going on, right? You've obviously got like the, the traditional HPC camp that they're really good at what they do. And they, you know, they want to become the data facilities, right, for the field. And then you got people like me who have been like experimenting with cloud computing. And I think, you know, it, to some I'm perceived as like this big cloud like advocate. They think I'm on like Amazon's payroll, like trying to like get everyone <laughs> to move to the cloud. You know, it's really just about like, what does this technology enable? Where I think things are headed that I'm pretty excited about is more cloud-like infrastructure, but not necessarily owned like all by AWS. So what, to give an example of this, one project that I'm super excited about is something called Open Storage Network. It is a collaboration funded by uh, the NSF and Schmidt Futures. It's run out of San Diego Supercomputing Center and National Center for Supercomputing Applications. So it's like very much from the HPC world. But right. what they're doing is they're building object storage. They're placing it on the internet with really high bandwidth uh, configurations. Like it's S3 compatible. You can hit it from the cloud. You can hit it from the HPC centers. Everybody can compute on it. You don't have to download the data. And it's really enabling this sort of like data fabric for really much more flexible workflows. And I'm really excited about that sort of thing. And I want to see that grow. It's a bit of then becomes a bit of a social and political problem of, okay, right. who should own that? Whose job is it to provide that infrastructure? Is it the university? Is it the agency? Is it each scientist pony up 20 bucks a month? Like no one has figured out actually the business model. I think there's, well, it's, there's so many different laws here, right? The, you think about Alan Kay's statement that people who are serious about software need to make their own hardware. And I would append that with a corollary to say, in this case, since you're serious about the software, you need to be, you get serious, you're making your own hardware choices, right? You're saying, I'm not actually wed to this particular thing. And there's also this kind of thing where in technology, we can look at things in tiers. Like here's the strata of, of the software. This is the software layer, or this is the platform layer. This is the operating system layer. But at the end of the day, those are all just models we layer on top of a pile of silicon energized to go and, and basically run a finite state machine really fast, right? And so when you look at it from that perspective, the only reason, isn't the only reason that we would have these separate supercomputing facilities be that we have some different kind of exotic hardware. If they're using vanilla, like for a while, it was like they have exotic hardware. Okay, sure. And then it was like, well, they've got commodity chips, the same chips that you find on the server on cloud, but they have exotic interconnects. So sparse matrix problems or other kinds of things, you know, your NUMA architectures and you know, RDMA kind of things let you do problems in a way that you cannot do in a generic kind of thing over here. But then good friends of mine are the ones from uh, cycle computing who are doing supercomputing applications in the cloud 10 years ago. They either pioneered that kind of thing and they got bought by Microsoft. And that's, that's like they were showing the, the feasibility even 10 years ago of doing these big supercomputing jobs in the cloud. And so as we move forward, I think there is like, 
if we zoom out past the budgets, past the organizational political dynamics and all the things, and just ask the question, what is in the best service of science? What is in the best service of reproducibility, agility, compute efficacy, and all these kinds of things? And it's an open question as to why would someone run their own infrastructure? And I'm not saying, I'm not asking that in a rhetorical sense. I'm asking that in a real sense. What are some reasons why one would run their own infrastructure, you know, actually be racking servers? What's different about the servers you're racking versus the data centers that Amazon or Azure or Google or whoever is racking, right? Is that a rhetorical question or do you, do you, you want to go I, into that? Well, I know I, I am actually interested in what you think are reasons that would get you off the cloud to prove to us you're not on the well, AWS payroll. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you about some of the things that a lot of the scientists I talk to worry about when we say, let's move our infrastructure to the cloud. A huge one that comes up is egress. People are very worried that we've put our data in the cloud. We won't be able to get it back. I think a lot of that is a little bit unfounded, but like, there's definitely like the idea that that business model is to build a moat around this data that was ultimately collected through public funding or generated at great effort through the scientists. Like it doesn't gel whether or not it's a valid technical argument. It's a very strong sort of psychological barrier for people putting a lot of data into the cloud. So whatever we can do to get rid of egress fees, and there's stuff happening around this, like internet two and all the cloud providers have sort of egress waiver agreements, treaties mm -hmm. to not charge egress. So that's one. And then, you know, there's a lot of fear about lock-in, you know, yep. to the cloud, like the idea that like, we're going to entrust this really precious scientific enterprise to like this company whose values might not align with ours. You know, I, and I think the solution there is to just, I want cloud to be a, as much of a commodity as possible. I really right. don't want like a lot of specialized services that are very bespoke to each cloud provider. Like I want like compute, storage, like a few like database, like a few basic things. And I want them to run really well and be cheap. And I want there to be competition in a marketplace. Same way it, it, we do for, you know, electricity, right? Like it's a utility. Right. So like, that's how I want cloud to be. I don't think that's how AWS wants cloud to be. They want to differentiate and add value and, and stuff, but there's always that tension there. Those are some of the issues that I see. Yeah, yeah. So around the egress thing, you know, it occurs to me that you could much more cheaply than keeping a data center up and maintaining it and all that stuff, you could pay, you could require the hyperscalers, the cloud hyperscalers to do something like, like AWS has their snowball thing. And there's also, they actually have snowmobile, yeah. which is literally like a, 40 foot shipping container full of hard drives. I think it's hundred petabytes in there. So you could require that the NFS, NSF funds or there's some kind of escrow thing or something where you have the right, you know, a few research institutions who were the recipients of the grant, they have the right to require a data, like a, almost like a data escrow, like an open data escrow thing. They just need an 18 wheeler full of hard drives to be delivered at the end of the contract or at some period of time to keep the data updated. I think there's ways around this, right? It's not like we don't have the technology, but I do understand those concerns. And it's a good concern. You don't want all of science to be captive or to be contingent on a few, you know, centralized providers. So that, that's, that all makes good sense. I'm just, I guess for me, you know, I always try to boil things down to a moral point, which is the number of brains that can think about the science and the scientific computing code and the infrastructure and the all whatever, and they commit their lives to doing the hard work of, and sometimes very, thankless work of research science, those few precious souls, we need them to be doing non-commodity things. We need them to be doing cutting edge right. things, right? Not sitting there doing stuff that is absolutely commoditized by the hyperscalers. Just like we don't have them soldering chips or trying to design their own freaking 
you know, like floating point units. That just doesn't make any sense anymore. I think this level of infrastructure, I think that the commoditization point has moved beyond this at this point. Totally. I really dig what you're saying. And this is also what I like to get back to sort of the Pi Data ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think this is just in terms of now just focusing on software. Like, right. I think Pi Data has really started to really penetrate into the mainstream science. It's probably now the dominant stack for in my field. But MATLAB is like a probably a close second. And, you know, but still, I think what we see is a lot of people are using the stack at a very basic level. They're using like mm -hmm. NumPy and Matplotlib, right? Like, right. which, you know, at the level of functionality is not, it's not really that much different than what you're getting in like basically any scientific computing environment, you know, language, right. MATLAB, IDL, R, you got your arrays of data and you can like plot it and then the rest is up to you. You know, where I'm really excited about our stack is the layers, the, the different functionality that can be built that doesn't then have to be rewritten and repeated and recreated by grad students over and over. I see this as the story of the Pangeo project, right? So mm -hmm. just for like a little history on that, like I'm a core developer on X-Array and back in, I think 2016, like we were having this discussion on the X-Array mailing list, like, hey, like X-Array is really great for climate science. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could coordinate our efforts and try to raise awareness about it and also add features, add functionality and sort of grow this community so that everyone else that we know in this field can have the same superpowers that we feel like we have when we're using X-Ray. And mm -hmm. so that's what led to the Pangeo project, which is like, it differs from something like AstroPy, which where they were writing actual software, like under the like name AstroPy, like Pangeo was all about integrating that software and to some degree marketing it to both our funding agencies and our colleagues as like a solution to some domain specific problems like a typical specific problem that it would address is like, okay, NASA is distributing like data about like ocean temperature. And there's like one file per day. And there's like 20,000 files, right? Going back to like the beginning of the record. We wanna like query that as one object, right? So when we bring to bear like, and we wanna do something like calculate statistics, like what are the trends? Like, are there more marine heat waves shown in this data? Like, are there, you know, are habitats for fish and other marine life going to change, right? Like, the combination of, say, like, X-Ray, Dask, Holoviews, this whole sort of higher level stack, and then you can, you can bring in Czar if you want to really optimize your storage, just makes those calculations turn into, like, one-liners, right? Like, right. things that before we were writing, like, hundreds of lines of code, like, looping through the files, writing the aggregations, like, figuring out bespoke parallelization strategies they become like one-liners like and that's what we've been really trying to sell and i think that's where you know there's still a lot of work to do to educate users and different communities about how powerful like higher layers of the pi data stack can be so that's really interesting um because when you think about scientists right scientists are they're busy they have lots of things. They want to work on their research. They want to work on their, their science. But when it comes to the software, some scientists take it seriously. Most see it as a means to an end, which it kind of is. And yet you could say the same about math. But you would find it would be insane to think of a scientist actually arguing that, oh, well, I'm okay with arithmetic. I don't really need 
algebra or maybe I know algebra, but I don't need trigonometry and certainly not calculus. I'll have someone else do that. Or when I really need it, I'll go read the books or something. And, you know, that seems insane. But what you're saying is, I think, somewhat in line with this, right? That there is a comp computational skill literacy something, almost like any other skill they would use, but, but not quite. Like maybe it's not quite like the other skills, like making good slides. They have to learn LaTeX. They have to go and write their papers in it, right? And so this idea of putting a little bit more effort in to help your own brain being augmented by the computer, the brain-computer interface really is what the programming language is. Optimize that interface. Go from 4-bit to 8-bit, maybe to 16-bit interface on that, on that bad boy. Stop beating your head into for loops and numpy.load mpz files and do something, you know, a little better. And I think some of it is marketing, right? Your, your point about Pangeo being somewhat of a marketing effort, somewhat of education, a community, moving the whole community forward. That's very, very, it's very sort of forward looking of you to realize that, yes, developer, open free developer tools actually need to have marketing. You know, who knew? But it's a thing. Well, and one thing we did crack with that effort that I, I really want people to replicate is we figured out how to get the NSF to pay for sustainable, truly valuable open source software development. And we did that by bundling the software development together with scientific use cases and then partnering with Anaconda, you know, at the start of that project where we were outsourcing a lot of the development work, not all of it, but there was a real partnership. If you want to think of it as from a traditional product point of view, we as the scientists were sort of acting as, a, you know, kind of the, a, to some degree, the users and, you know, mm -hmm. the product owners who had certain requirements. And we were iterating quite quickly with people, you know, Matt Rockland was very involved early on and, mm -hmm. you know, Dask and, um, you know, Jim Bednar and the Holoviews tools, you know, this iteration was pretty productive and it left behind instead of creating new software, we augmented what was already there. And mm -hmm. that's a pattern that in general, NSF funding hadn't been able to unlock. And I think we found right. a way to do it. And I want people to just repeat it over and over. So I just, if anyone's listening, you're a scientist and you want to do this, like <laughs> write a proposal to your agency that focuses on like science outcomes that has a big chunk that says, okay, here's software dev we need to do to get those outcomes and then partner with one of these great open source you know, shops, whether Anaconda or, you know, Quantsite, Quantstack, MakePath. I mean, there's a lot of great companies out there that can do really high quality dev work fast, much faster than you can hire a postdoc to do it and just iterate. And you do that for three years and you can really move the ecosystem forward. And I think, you know, it's a good model. Well, I definitely appreciate the kind words. And I think that the collaboration part of it is actually one of these things where it's one plus one equals three. I appreciate we're talking about science and I just gave you invalid arithmetic. But it really is that partnership of the scientists actually in that collaboration, the scientists don't have to choose to be these hybrids of like, am I a software developer now trying to do maintainable, good software architecture, or am I a scientist actually thinking about the science of what I'm doing? In these kind of partnerships, the folks, you know, what, again, whether it's Anaconda, whether it's one of these other companies, we do have an eye, we have, an ex we have experience, we have an eye towards thinking about what is sustainable, good architecture, or what we may even push back and say, you know, this is not actually an appropriate thing to try to build as, as its own standalone project, you probably should have this as just either, you know, just a part of what you're doing for this particular research project. And so we can give that kind of feedback as well on things like this. And I think this, you know, that's the kind of thing that I absolutely agree with you would be, we love to be part of those kinds of things. And we're, you know, we do some of that kind of stuff in our services work for big enterprise companies, you know, we're helping them to build and tweak internal dashboarding kinds of things or whatever kinds of stuff doing predictive and, and data scientific sort of work. So 
it's definitely an area that we we want to help in and and science you know the, the climate science stuff is like i guess all science is impactful well, you know there's medical research there's all these kinds of amazing things happening right now but climate science is the one that i think so many people understand the importance of now it's just hard to say after the last several years i can't imagine anyone is got their head in the sand about the fact that it's real things are changing and we have to be able to predict what's going to happen otherwise we'll be caught very very unawares when hundreds of millions and we're talking about you know these are like sovereignty ending kinds of catastrophes that could happen and impact hundreds of millions of lives and so in this regard what are the i mean is there anything like in the climate science arena i'm glad to hear it's all like so much open collaboration and the ethos and all that but are there aspects that you think are set to really change our understanding in a dramatic way are there things that are you know going through an inflection point or are there like big things on the horizon that you know if we could do the right kinds of scientific computing infrastructure modeling all that stuff that we could dramatically advance and improve how we're approaching climate science yeah so i think one trend that we have to definitely pay attention to in climate science is the emergence of a real private sector right mm -hmm. that's something that's super interesting because when i got into oceanography you know starting in 2006 i mean i thought of it like think of astronomy right like right. astronomy right. is a beautiful rich fascinating subject like it doesn't have a lot of direct bearing on like our economy right like but it's 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 rich great scientific problem and that was really where i was coming from in oceanography mm -hmm. i just love to look at the data try and understand what's going on turbulence and all that stuff but in that period like the realities of climate change have really emerged from the noise you know in climate we have the the internal variability which you can think of as the noise and then there's a forced signal you know the response to our greenhouse gas emissions and um that forced signal is getting more and more clear and it's only going to accelerate going forward and so we're seeing society respond and we're seeing the economy respond and we are seeing business respond and unfortunately our government has been pretty much inactive on this the big climate bill the inflation reduction bill whatever they had to call it to get it passed that's going to make a huge difference but even before that bill passed business has been mobilizing because they know the impacts are going to be felt on their bottom line and so we have this whole climate tech sector with you know hundreds of billions of dollars being invested and this is a really interesting time for climate science and climate data because all those companies need data they're working with the same data sets and so we have this scientific infrastructure that's been oriented towards just academic research that now also has to serve those business needs and that's creating a lot of opportunity it's creating a lot of tension it's creating a lot of interesting times for the field that is an interesting thing because i i feel like when companies are themselves looking using this data to make predictions about you know logistics or insurance and reinsurance and things like that you can see a lot of that stuff where people are, they're still sharing of this data commons, right? But then at some point, I wonder if there's something a little bit darker that could creep in where data withholding and things like that are part of the model advantage or some data quality leading to model quality becomes a part of the competitive advantage, not just de-risking, but actual competitive advantage for some of these enterprises and whatnot. It's a little bit of moral hazard, right? Because if you know that a certain thing, if you know a particular area is more likely to go underwater and you don't tell them, you're just going to use it to make a little bit more money on your premiums or how much you, you know, model certain mortgage portfolios. Like, this seems like there's a moral hazard there, isn't there? Walk me through that a little bit more. Well, I'm just thinking the moral hazard. The moral hazard is like if you can do accurate modeling 
of something where you know it's going to have a human impact. It seems like there's some kind of an obligation for you to tell people about that, right? To to say, you know what? Don't use the NOAA model. Don't use the NASA model. We have a much better one, which can predict, let's say, the, the storm track. And we can give people 12 more hours of warning. Don't you have a moral obligation to then make that model open? And you're referring to the case when like a company would develop that model. Yes, I'm talking about the privatization the of this research kind of thing. enterprise. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. That's really interesting. Okay, I totally get what you're saying. And absolutely, it's true. And the, then that idea of IP and proprietary knowledge comes into direct conflict with the open data ethos of the academic research enterprise. Exactly. The truth of the matter is right now, and this could change, but like the private sector is not really capable of making climate projections for the simple reason that like remember those hpc centers we were talking about 20 right. models 20 yep. minutes ago like they don't have those right and that's actually where all of the climate projections originate from and mm -hmm. they can talk all they want about using ai and this and that but like even the same with weather prediction like no one really is running a real weather model outside of government labs you know, the way the National Weather Service does or the European Center. So, I mean, we could get there, but we're not there today. Most of what these companies are doing is taking that data and enriching it somehow or fusing it with other data. Right, uh, right. In terms of the moral hazard, yeah, I mean, I think it's real. I think it was problematic if companies are using some specialized knowledge about the climate to, say, help Goldman, like, improve their portfolio, but not, like, help children in Bangladesh, like avoid catastrophic heat waves or something. But the fact is, I believe interests are aligned in almost all cases, right? So in terms of adaptation to climate change, like we've seen what happens to people when supply chains are disrupted, like empty shelves, like real, you know, no, like diapers, like that's a case where like everyday people's interests and business interests are highly aligned to keep those supply chains functioning. You know, that's a supply chains are a big place where climate change is going to be a very direct impact. No, of course. Right. This is an interesting area. And I think about the Now we're going to go like two levels up on the philosophy and the economics and the and the politics of this. You bring up Goldman, which is, of course, they are very active and they're very, very renowned firm in the space of financial services and investment banking and prediction of sort of financial things. And one could argue, of course, that. When traders are out there, this is not this is not really about Goldman. This is about the way that the financial sector works. When traders are sitting there and they're shorting this or they're arbitraging that, they're making predictions, and they're the way they allocate capital affects people's livelihoods and people's lives. So there is there is a human impact to what they do, no doubt about it, right? But that being said, the data they're trading on ultimately it's a big casino. They're still making a bet. They're taking a position. There's some arbitrage available in various kinds of things. But at the end yeah. of the day, they're having to take a position on what the future may look like. And it's through a cloud of there could be geopolitical risk. There's you know, all sorts of things. Who knows what people are buying or not buying or watching or not watching. But when it comes to something like the weather, we now have a prediction environment, and a prediction problem that is just as materially impactful as, I'm sorry, I said weather, I should say the climate. When it comes to climate, right? That's a data-centric prediction problem yeah. that is just as impactful as anything is trading signals off of Wall Street. but there's a, to me, it seems like there's a much clearer connection between the value of this as a commons, good modeling, good prediction as a commons, yeah. as opposed to it being 
a scarce resource for people to go and try to arbitrage each other on. And this is the thing that we're going to have to figure out because I think it's not just climate. So many other things as they come online, as predictions become more and more an online part of how businesses are making decisions about logistics, about customers. Okay, about Peter, let me, let me interrupt you for a minute. You know, I think I see where you're going about this potential divide that could emerge between the companies working on this and the rest of the world. And I really do think it's a problem that can be solved through effective cooperation around both the data and software commons that all of the stakeholders in this problem have. We want to incentivize companies to find solutions to climate change, but we don't want to do that by having them build a wall around common data or around tools that can benefit everyone. And everyone I talk to who's operating in this space feels that way. It's not that they're in it to like get super rich. They're trying to use the market to drive innovation and find solutions. The academic climate research enterprise needs to meet them halfway by thinking about things like data infrastructure. If we make our data systems so inaccessible and obscure, then there's going to emerge a whole sector of the, this industry that's just going to repackage and resell the data to people. That's true. You know, yeah. And you can already see this happening in, in the crypto space. You, know, you can go read about all this climate data you can get in, in, on Web3. You know, they say, uh, you know, the NASA data is so obscure and weird, it's not usable by business. Like, join our coin and, like, we'll give you clean climate data to integrate into your apps. Like, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's, as a research enterprise, make our data system so great that it's easy for, to use for scientists to make discoveries. It's easy to use for businesses to leverage that data that was collected through taxpayers. And let's make it easy to give back. Right, right now, the data exchange is pretty one way. You know, generally, like NASA and NOAA are collecting a lot of data and generating data, and others are consuming it. But you know, I'm really inspired by companies like Planet. Right, they launched their own fleet of satellites, and they've been a really good citizen, contributing a lot of open data back to the community. A lot of great software and infrastructure work has come out of Planet. So, if there are going to be more companies like that operating in this space, I am very optimistic about the future. But we on the on the research and government side have to meet them halfway and modernize our infrastructure. I think you're absolutely right. There's something about and you know, we we sort of noticed this a little bit in the software side on the open source stuff too, right? We produce a lot of this great scientific software that's fit for purpose, it's made by scientists to solve their own problems. But if it's hard to use, no one adopts it. They will go to a cloud vendor that, or I won't say cloud vendor, but they'll go to any vendor that cheesily repackages it cheesily and says, well, here's an easier thing. And so, so I do think actually in this way, right, with Anaconda, making some of these easier to install was a way to kind of prevent that from happening. And I think with data, with models, the same thing has to happen. The whole community of maintainers, people who believe in the necessity of this being open and being an open commons. We have to really respect what the end users' needs are and go an extra mile to make it easy for them to participate in the way that we want them to show up, right, in this kind of ecosystem. Otherwise, others will step in and then direct them kind of in whatever direction. So that's a really great comment. I appreciate you giving me some, so, some hope in that regard. Can I tell you about our Pangeo Forge project, which Please, is trying absolutely. to yeah. help solve this? Okay. Okay. So probably most of your listeners know about Conda Forge, right? So like, Conda Forge, they really democratized the sort of production of Conda packages by creating a sort of cloud-based environment where you could provide a recipe. You didn't, you know, before Conda Forge, you could build 
your own Conda package can compile everything up and like put it on the, the website. But like Conda Forge made it even easier to contribute to like the library of Conda packages. That really opened things up. And I think it's really cool. Now, Pangeo Forge is trying to do something similar with analysis ready data in the cloud, right? So a lot of the data engineering work in this space means taking data in some archival format from some data provider. Let's just pick NOAA. NOAA is great. I'm not trying to pick on them, but they basically have a you know FTP server full of a bunch of files in some obscure format like GRIB that you can download. And what we want is essentially we want that in a database or a data lake, right? Where they're accessible to compute, ready for analysis, where we don't have to do a bunch of data engineering legwork just to get to our first plot. So that kind of work happens every day in scientific labs. That's happening every day in, in these companies we're talking about in the climate tech space. And it's really tedious. It's full of toil. And it's ultimately repeatable. Like many people are doing the same job over and over. And so the goal of Pangeo Forge is to create a sort of data commons where we can build this analysis-ready data in the cloud from all kinds of different sources in a crowdsourced collaborative way, right? So we directly copy the, the sort of pattern from Conda Forge. You know, you have a feedstock that describes the sort of transformation pipeline. Where am I going to ingest the data from? How am I going to transform it along the way? What sort of format am, am I writing it to? And then the back end of, of Pangeo Forge just executes those interfacing with Git, triggered on commits to the repos, and it stages the data. And we're populating this library of open access data that's accessible to everyone, can be used by researchers, can be used by businesses. It's not like one guy who has to like manage all the pipelines. It's a community framework where we can do this collaboratively. This is a project I'm super excited about. It's really hard. Like it's very ambitious and we're, it's way beyond our capability as just our team to actually realize the potential. So whenever I get a platform, I like to sort of plug it a little bit and encourage people to get involved because like we could use way more like hands on deck for this project. At the same time, it's up to date, it's functional and it's, it's really cool what it can do. That sounds great. I know it's thankless. I mean, look, data munging is always thankless work, right? But at least you're doing it once, making sure no one has to do it again. And furthermore, it seems to me like the data transformation thing you're doing here and the way that you you know, handle data, scientific data formats, the fact that it's running kind of in this cloud way, but all the infrastructure is open, that's reproducible. You clone stamp that for astronomy, you can clone stamp that for, you know, so many different kinds of things, right? I'm happy you plugged it, I'm glad you plugged it, and I encourage our listeners to go and check that out. And also to check out X-Array, which you mentioned you are now, you know, went from being a user to being a maintainer developer of, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I love X-Ray and I'll, I'll hype it up whenever I get a chance, right? So basically, you know, what X-Ray is, if, if for people who don't know it, you know, like it, the way we think about the, the PyData stack is usually like kind of have like kind of NumPy at the base. It's like the foundation of everything. And then like Pandas is this abstraction that sits on top of NumPy in, in many ways. Like it uses NumPy under the hood and it provides things like indexes and group by and a bunch of like cool features. Pandas is really oriented around the tabular data model, right? So in Pandas, really, you've just got, you know, your various rows and you got your, your columns. Whereas NumPy actually has, you can have N dimensions to any of your, your arrays, right? So what Pandas ultimately does under the hood is it just manages a bunch of one-dimensional NumPy arrays. X-Array aims to provide that higher level API around multi-dimensional data. 
right? So what we get in x-rays, we say we've got a data cube temperature on Earth. Rather than just thinking about axis zero, axis one, and axis two, we can think about time axis, latitude axis, longitude axis. We can have an index on each of those axes. So query it, not by position integer offset within a nameless array, but by give me, okay, give me 2001, you know, at this latitude and this longitude, we can query the data and we can get things like group by rolling reductions, all of the awesome convenience features and that really help analysts, you know, write better analysis code, write faster analysis code. And then X-Ray also wraps many, many different array-like things, not just NumPy arrays. So you've got, you know, Dask was one of our first integrations. So X-Ray can hold a Dask array. And bringing those two together, you have this sort of amazing scale-out framework for array computing that I know of no other thing that does that. Like, there's a lot of frameworks that will allow you to do, like, bit large-scale analytics on tables. I mean, that there's, like, there's probably from traditional databases to, you know, all your Sparks and Presto and Trino and, you know, everything does tables, right? So Pandas and Dask data framers, just one of two dozen different solutions to that. I know of no other framework that allows you to do like this scale out analytics on arrays the way X-Ray and Dask do. It's really a superpower. Yes. It's not just the multiple dimensionality you have, but also the fact that it is labeled, that you're you're able to do really use meaningful semantic indexing on this stuff. I, I do understand that all the cool kids call multidimensional arrays tensors now. So if you were to call it like hypertensor <laughs> or something, maybe you get a little bit more of a more, more adoption uptick and a few more stars on GitHub. But uh... <laughs> as a computational physicist, I just cannot get behind the tensor thing. A tensor is a different thing. Tensors are about symmetries and properties under transformations and Arrays are just big multidimensional buckets of numbers, and that's what these things all are. But you call it you call distributed that, so. buckets of numbers too. That would also be kind of hilarious. <laughs> I see that trending on, on Hacker News. Um, buckets but, you know, of numbers. We have, we, <laughs> our ecosystem has made a lot of advances in terms of array API. So now we've got sparse arrays, we've got GPU arrays, CuPy, we've got pint unit aware arrays. So you know, in in X-ray now, you can do analytics on X-ray wrapping Dask, which is then pointing at CuPy arrays and compute on a GPU cluster, or you can have unit-aware arrays in there. And the next step that we're working on is integration with the machine learning tensor libraries, so PyTorch tensors, JAX arrays, so that you can hold all of those things within X-ray, compute on them using X-ray's API, which people love, and then get along, get things like automatic differentiation you know, all of the machine learning and other features that those array libraries bring. So we really think of X-Ray as kind of this ecosystem glue that brings all these other things together. And it's kind of the top layer of the stack that so many of us use. That's fantastic. And I'm so glad to see that come around. And if we had more time, I'd love to delve a little bit more into a kind of, you know, these global array concepts and maybe even talk about Chapel and some of these other things. But we are, we're somewhat out of time, but I've just tremendously enjoyed this conversation with you, Ryan. I want to thank you for bringing so much energy into it and all the great things that you've done for scientific computing and for science. And encourage our listeners to check out X-Ray, to check out Pangeo Forge and the Pangeo Project in general. And I look forward to, to future conversations. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks, Peter. It's been so much fun. 
Thank you. And as a reminder to the listeners, of course, in the show notes, you can find links to all these projects. So be sure to check out our show notes. Thank you for listening. And we hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and resources at anaconda.com. This episode is brought to you by Anaconda, the world's most popular data science platform. We are committed to increasing data literacy and to providing data science technology for a better world. Anaconda is the best way to get started with, deploy, and secure Python and data science software on-prem or in the cloud. Visit anaconda.com for more information.